we are blessed to open the Word again together. Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 17. What we have here today is something that is common to all of us. Probably if you're a believer, especially if you're a a solid member here at NBC, it happens probably every week. You come to church, come on the Lord's Day, it's beautiful, there's worship and fellowship and the study of God's Word, or There are friends around, there's so much joy, but then you go from this mountaintop, corporate worship, fellowship, and communion, you go back down the mountain into the dark, dingy valley of day-to-day life. And often that includes not just the, the banality, the boringness and mundaneness of life, but it also introduces to your life all kinds of problems and woes that come with normal life. And the question is, how do I maintain my joy? How do I maintain the faith that I had on the Lord's Day? How do I maintain those spiritual joys? How do I keep that in my normal walk of life? It's a lot easier to live by faith and control your temper and desire those things that are godly on Sunday morning. It's a lot harder when you're doing it during the week. And really, it's not necessarily a matter of hypocrisy, although we all struggle with hypocrisy. It's just easier on Sunday morning on the mountaintop to walk by faith and endure in your faith. And it should, shouldn't it? Well, this is the experience of Peter, James, and John. They went up to the mountaintop with Jesus, saw His undiluted glory, the Shekinah glory of God, bearing testimony of the greatest prophets of all time, and not just them, but the testimony of God Himself. And I'm sure they were in awe, filled with faith and holy desires, and they make their way with Jesus back down the mountain, and there are the rest of the disciples, helpless, hapless, impotent disciples, a demon-possessed child, a confused crowd, and a, a big argument is happening Jesus, of course, heals the boy, which is amazing enough, but that's not the point of the story. You remember this part in the story of Matthew's gospel, this is all about teaching the disciples. So this is all about teaching the disciples a lesson about having faith in a faithless world. Here he teaches the disciples a kind of faith that endures, endures the valleys and the mundaneness of normal life, the kind of faith that endures the the boring walk, which includes hardship and even death. It includes sin and apathy that comes upon all of us. How do we maintain our faith in a faithless generation? Is this something that's relevant to us? You better believe it. Jesus gives it to us here in Matthew 17. Follow along. I'm going to read verses 14 to 20. Follow along as I read aloud. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. They brought him into your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. 
And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. And the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. This is the Word of God. Hanging in the Pinacoteca Vaticana, this is a part of the Vatican Museum, is an unfinished painting. It is unfinished because the painter, Renaissance master Raphael, died before he could finish it. But there's enough there that you can understand what is depicted. In fact, I think some artists came along later, some of his disciples, and filled out what was missing. The top half of the painting is the transfiguration. There is the brilliant, gleaming Jesus and all his Shekinah glory, light radiating from him. On either side of Jesus are Elijah and Moses in that brilliant cloud, both testifying to the greatness and truth of the Messiah God, Jesus of Nazareth. Below them, of course, there are the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, waking from their slumber, even covering their eyes because of the brightness of Jesus Christ. They're surrounded there, attesting to the beauty and wonder and the truth of the glory and magnificence of their Savior, Jesus Christ. The bottom half of the painting stands in stark contrast to the upper half. It's not used with pastel colors and bright whites. It's dark. You look at the people there, there's the rest of the disciples, nine of them arguing and fighting, and there's scribes and Pharisees there. There's, of course, this demon-possessed boy enduring that hardship. Raphael aptly captured what's going on here in the Gospel of Matthew. Moreover, he brilliantly captured the, the stark contrast between these two adjacent events. The gleaming glory of Christ is kingly glory up on the mountain in contrast to the broken and crazed and satanic world below. What I appreciate most about the painting is that it is obvious that in spite of the dark dementia which the world is engulfed in, there is an answer, and the answer is none other than Jesus Christ. If we could somehow get that king of glory in our hearts down while we live in this dark world, if somehow we could have the faith that we had on top of that mountain down when we face the world. We need this, don't we? We all need this. Somehow to maintain our vision of Christ, to maintain our strong faith when we're atop, on top of the mountain, focus on the glories of Christ, somehow to maintain that faith in the day-to-day lives that we live and also the hardships that we face. Well, this is the kind of faith that Jesus wants to teach His disciples about. That's the kind of faith that He's wanting to instruct His disciples as He heads toward Jerusalem. He wants to encourage them and give them the kind of faith that will sustain life. Well, down here I've marked four attributes of true faith or four attributes of an enduring or persevering faith. 
that we can draw from the story that Jesus teaches his disciples. I hope this helps you, and I hope it will help me as well. First of all, Jesus calls them to a calm faith. Jesus calls them to a calm faith, a faith that calms us, a faith that eases the burden of life, a faith that brings us to our senses and settles our hearts, a faith that rises above the, the chaos of this world, the chaos of our circumstances, and instills in us a peace, a resolute stability. That's the kind of faith that we need. Verse 14 says, a man came and knelt before Jesus, and he tells him this sad story of his son who's suffering from epilepsy or some other kind of seizures, but it's worse than that, isn't it? We find very quickly that this is not simple epilepsy. It may have involved that, but this is demon possession. This seems to overcome him when he's near fire or water and wants to, to kill him and throw him into the fire or water. Some kind of demon, demonic oppression here. So this man reports to Jesus. He brought him to the disciples. Uh, the other disciples could not do anything. It says in verse 16, they couldn't heal him. Now this is where I think we can say fairly certainly that the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark was written before the Gospel of Matthew. I go back and forth sometimes and feel like one was written before the other, but I think this is one of the evidences, this story is one of the evidences that, that Mark was penned first because it seems to draw on more knowledge, and Mark does give us a fuller account of what happened here. Mark chapter 9, verse 14, you don't have to turn there, but let me read to you. It says, when they, talking of Peter, James, and John, and Jesus... When they came down the mountain, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered, and this is where we pick up in Matthew. Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able to do so. So you get this picture. The disciples have, Peter, James, and John, namely, have gone from this wonderful, beautiful mountaintop down to this world of fighting and bickering and inability, argumentativeness. The disciples themselves are entwined, not in faith and demonstrating a calmness. No, they're arguing with the scribes and the crowd that's there. In the middle of it all, you have this demon-possessed boy who's foaming at the mouth in need of healing. I can just imagine the scene. Disciples uh, attempted at some point to get this demonic spirit out of this boy. Back in Matthew 17, verse 16, they're unable. I thought to myself, what should have the disciples been doing? I mean, what would faith dictate to them to do? I wrote down several things. Perhaps there are other things you could come up with, but I, I thought to myself, well, at the very least, they could be praying. At the very least, they could be on their knees beg, begging God to, to do something on this man's behalf, on this boy's behalf, and demonstrating their confidence in the power of God, but they're not praying. Yeah, they could have laid their hands on the boy. That's another thing they could have done, laid their hands on him and prayed to God. As they called out for God to, uh, to heal this boy, they could have been putting their hands on this boy and praying for healing. They could have laid their hands and prayed for the father. 
Maybe the boy wasn't immediately available, or maybe he was uh, too crazed to, to put their hands on him. But at the very least, they could have put hands on the father and prayed that God would hear the prayer of this father, ministered to the father until Jesus returned. They could have simply just announced to the crowd, now, calm down, we, we need to have a spirit of faith and calmness here. These disciples could have done all sorts of things, but what were they doing? They were arguing, they were bickering, bickering, I imagine, among themselves, bickering with the scribes, the Pharisees, the leaders, that, spiritual leaders that were there, probably creating even more division among themselves, among the disciples, even among the people. Instead of having a, a calm, resolute faith and calling others to it, they stooped down to the chaos of the circumstances. Is that you? Is your attitude and your spirit defined by your circumstances, the chaos of this world? Is your spirit defined by your attitude, defined by who's doing what to you? Perhaps the, the latest diagnosis the doctor's given you, perhaps what your children are doing is... Your attitude, your spirit defined by what's happening down in this world? James says in James 1.19, the anger of man, and it's even fuller than anger. The word there is broader than just anger. It's all this passionate emotion. The anger of man cannot produce the righteousness of God. In other words, when you give your attitude and heart to despair, when you let your attitude and your heart come under circumstances... It's not working the righteousness of God. You're taking a step away from a God-pleasing faith, moving in the wrong direction. Well, the nine disciples here are moving in the wrong direction. They got soaked up by their circumstances. They lost their cool. They lost their calm, determined faith. In verse 17, Jesus looks at them and all the others. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Jesus is not asking the question, you know, I don't know when I'm going to die. I don't know when anything's going to happen. I don't know the timeline here. He's not actually asking them a question. He's just bemoaning the situation. Jesus found the disciples. They were not praying. They were not helping. They were not giving the people a spirit of calmness and faith. They were not trying to help the man or the boy. Instead, they were bickering with the crowd, bickering with themselves, bickering with the scribes, with one another. It stooped to a level of faithlessness, a faithlessness that describes all these unbelievers that were there. This is the central issue. Jesus is teaching the disciples here about true, enduring faith. And if you're to name this kind of faith, you'd have to say that Jesus is saying... One of the attributes of faith is a calm faith, a confident faith, a faith that truly trusts in God. And as these disciples are to go later on and begin to call people that faith, there is to be a level of, of calmness. They're to rise above their circumstances, to, to live a life that has calm confidence in a God who is sovereign over all. I don't know about you, but as I studied this and looked at this, this is, this is a stern rebuke so often. I, I fail this, don't I? Don't you fail this sometimes? You get soaked up with your circumstances, the things in life, and you become like those nine disciples. Jesus lumps these disciples with that unbelieving 
generation. You are all a faithless generation. These men are believers, but they join the masses of unbelievers with their lack of trust in a sovereign God. We live faithless lives that lack perseverance, that lack a calmness, that lack an endurance, that lack peace, that lack that serenity. We become like the masses of people that don't even believe in a sovereign God. To the first lesson that Jesus teaches here, especially in the midst of hardship, that we, is that we should have a calm faith. Boy, I think some of us need this, right? We need a calm faith. What's well, another description of the faith that Jesus is teaching here? Number two, an informed faith. Again, Jesus uh, gives something more here, and Mark records this, this fuller story. They bring the boy to Jesus. Mark 9, 20 says that when they brought the boy to Jesus, he started to convulse and seize up another sign that this is not just epilepsy. This is actually demon possession. Uh, uh, the de- demonic powers, the demons actually always recognize Jesus for who he is. He starts to convulse and seize and foam, foam at the mount, mouth. Verse 18 here in Matthew, Jesus rebuked the demon, and the boy is healed. Now, let's just follow, remind ourselves of the flow of the last uh, chapter, really, of the book of Matthew. In chapter 16, we... We began with the false impressions, the false assumptions about who Christ is. The scribes and the Pharisees demanding signs, people making all kinds of guesses about who Jesus is. Jesus warning his men, guys, don't become like these, these scribes and Pharisees. They're, they're leaven. Their belief is a false belief. Don't become like that. And Jesus asked his men in the next section, who do you say that I am? Peter speaks on behalf of the disciples. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He identifies Christ because of the Holy Spirit. He identifies Christ properly. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is teaching His men the truth about who He is, His identity, the truth of who He is and how a person comes to that truth, how a person follows Jesus. He is Christ, the anointed one of the Old Testament. He is Lord. He is God. He's the Savior. Then Jesus explained to them that He must suffer and die, and they, if they follow Him, should take up their own cross and follow in this very same pattern. In this advent, Jesus is teaching his men, in this arrival of Christ, he is not revealed, he's not come as the judge and king executing justice upon this world, but as a gentle savior, a shepherd who would lay down his life for a sheep. Later he will come as judge and execute justice with his holy angels. Last week then, we looked at the transfiguration. This is when Jesus confirmed all these truths about His identity, about His way in this world, about even His suffering. And so all this knowledge, all of this truth about Christ should be in the front of our minds. It should be right in our frontal lobe. We're thinking about the truth about who Jesus is. So I draw this second point from that context. The challenge we have oftentimes is to remind ourselves and to teach ourselves from Scripture about the nature of Christ, who He is, what He came to do, and what He will come to do one day. The challenge here, I believe, is to to aim our faith at the one and only Jesus Christ. You know, many people, most of them impacted by the prosperity gospel, aim their faith not at Christ but at miracles. 
They think if they believe strongly enough that a miracle will occur, then, then God is sort of duty-bound to make that miracle happen. But that's not faith. Certainly not faith in Jesus Christ. We should aim our faith at Jesus Christ. We should inform ourselves. We should teach ourselves. We should learn from pastors and teachers and Bible studies about the nature of Jesus Christ. All of these things leading up to this moment, they should remind themselves who Jesus is, what He's come to do, what He will do in the future. Many people think it's enough just to believe in some sort of generic representation of Jesus. No real depth, no real understanding of His claims, no real searching of scriptures to understand his doctrine, the things he taught, the things he believed. Just have some sort of generic, broad affirmation of Jesus, and that's enough, right? Wrong. We should teach ourselves. It's amazing, and I've mentioned this before, it's amazing how much the Bible encourages us toward knowledge, not just knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but knowledge of Christ so that we would have greater faith in that Christ. It should be an informed faith. And there's a a great battle that's been raging really since the beginning of the last century. It's an anti-intellectualism that sort of raged all of America. There's this idea that if you pursue knowledge, if you pursue truth, if you pursue doctrine, not only will you drive people away, you yourself may stray away from the God of the Bible. And so many Christians just sort of assume that the right kind of faith is an ignorant faith. A stupid faith, a faith that doesn't study, a faith just sort of blindly leaps into nothingness. Now, this is nothing but far from the truth. We should pursue knowledge of Christ. Looking back at what Matthew has presented to us, looking back at all the things that he's told us so far, we should inform ourselves, we should learn about the atonement, we should dig deep. That's not to say that the gospel isn't simple, so simple that even a child could understand, but that's just the beginning. We, We dig deeper, we go further, we teach ourselves more and more. We get up every day eager to learn the truth of Scripture, the truth of Jesus Christ. This gives us greater and greater faith. True faith is not some sort of bland, monotone, generic affirmation of Jesus. It is a faith that seeks greater faith, a belief that seeks greater belief, that digs deeper, that learns more. It's a faith in the Christ of the Bible and a faith in a God who has given us the Bible that is full of His truth. And we should give our lives to study it. The faithless generation there in verse 17 that Jesus talks about, they had plenty of faith, but it wasn't a Christward faith. It was not an informed faith. It was not a faith that believed in the truths of Christ. It was not guided and bound by Scripture. I think that's what exasperated Jesus. How many times did He say, have you not read? You guys know all this religious stuff, but it's like you've never even read the Bible. They, they, as Jews, were surrounded with the truth of Scripture, surrounded with all the means, they, all the means to inform themselves, to know of the Christ of Scripture, to, to learn about the promise of the Messiah and see that Jesus Himself is the fulfillment of all these things. And yet, they clung to an uninformed, generic faith. True faith is informed by the Word. Enduring faith is an informed faith. That's number two. Third, enduring, persevering faith in a faithless world is a genuine faith. 
It's a faith that goes down deep into your heart, has a level of sincerity, excuse me, and earnestness. And what we have in front of us here, especially in verse 20, is a little bit confusing. It sounds like Jesus contradicts himself. Let me read to you, beginning in verse 18. Jesus rebuked the demon, it came out of him. The boy was healed instantly. The disciples came to Jesus privately and asked, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Now, what looks contradictory is that it says you couldn't accomplish this because of your little faith, but then he says, you know, little faith is what moves mountains. I had to sort of pause there and say, wait, what's going on here? Well, the words, quote, little faith there, it's a single word in the original. It can mean small or diminutive in terms of amount, but that would mean Jesus is sort of saying the opposite thing in the same sentence. He's sort of contradicting himself as he spits these words out. No, I think Jesus was not contradicting himself, and Matthew and everyone who wrote, uh, read this, and Matthew who wrote this, I don't think they're contradicting themselves. They didn't see this glaring impossibility here. So I looked up that word for little faith. It can also mean a faith that is short-falled, short-falling, or a faith that is insufficient, or an impoverished faith, a, a purposefully impoverished faith. It's a, a fake kind of faith, and it's so fake that some translators translate that word, little faith, simply as unbelief. That's the kind of faith this is. It's a fake faith. It's a false faith. They didn't take into account the truth of Scripture. They didn't take into account the identity of Jesus. They didn't take into account all the things that Jesus had taught them. Rather, they clung to a fake, generic faith. It was almost like the nine disciples said to themselves, well, you know, Jesus has done this trick before. Maybe we can make this trick happen again. They didn't think of Christ. They didn't think of his identity. They didn't think of the truth of Scripture. They just thought of this trick. Maybe we can do this trick again. That's the kind of faith that Jesus means by saying little faith. In contrast to that kind of faith is genuine faith, a faith that is informed, a faith that is rightly aimed at Jesus. It's not faith in simply the supernatural. It's not faith in man. It's not faith in history. It's not faith in miracles. It's a rightly believing faith, a rightly aimed faith, a faith that's full of calm assurance, a faith that's full of knowledge of His power and His truth and His sovereignty. It's a kind of faith that says, I have faith, but Lord, give me more. I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Well, that's not the kind of faith that the nine or anyone else had there at the bottom of the mountain. In fact, one commentator that I read said here, we see the difference between poor faith, which is not faith at all, and little faith, which is enough to move mountains. It was a chaos. It was poor faith, and it was not even faith at all. It was not even genuine faith. It was unbelief. It was a form of false faith. It was a faithlessness. It was a form of unbelief posing as faith. Genuine faith is aimed at Christ, not at circumstances. Genuine faith has trust in God, His sovereign plan, not in your desired outcome. It is faith in God's goodness. It's not faith in 
getting what you want from God. That's genuine faith. And Jesus said, second part of the verse there, if you have faith, true faith, calm faith, biblically informed faith, genuine Christ-honoring, God-glorifying faith, if even you have a small amount of that faith in your heart, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Well, that brings me to the final description of true, enduring faith. True faith is, number four, a hopeful faith. A hopeful faith. Now, I want to make this clear. This idea of moving the mountain with faith, this is actually a a pretty common uh, word picture that people would use in that day. And, And that day and place and time when faith in Yahweh was described, oftentimes this is how the teachers would describe it. You can find several occasions in what's called the Talmud, which is uh, Jewish teachings, a collection of Jewish teachings. You can find that back then they were teaching this idea of faith in God enough to move mountains. So Jesus is not talking in a realistic sense in terms of physical reality, like a bunch of Christians are going to walk around and start shifting mountains around just because they have a whole bunch of faith. That's not his point. His point is to highlight the magnificent power of God to those who have true faith, enduring faith. That language, faith to move even mountains, would have been familiar to the people who were listening to Jesus in that time. And they would have not taken Jesus in a literal sense, but they knew that it meant that all things were possible. God's power, God's full, supreme, sovereign power was availed to those who had faith in Him. So Jesus is using that language here, true faith, godly faith, the kind of faith that we should have, even if you have a small amount of it, even if it's like a mustard seed, the smallest farming seed they knew of, you will say to this mountain, he's speaking of the boy's uh, situation, what's going on, he's speaking of temptations, he's speaking of personal hardships, he's speaking of enduring through mundane life even, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, we know, thanks to Mark, that Jesus also said this kind, speaking of the demon, this kind cannot come out except by prayer and fasting. And later some scribes actually added that to Matthew's account. And though it was true to what happened there, uh, those manuscripts didn't come until later. So scribes were adding that later. Maybe you'll see that note, verse 21, has sort of disappeared from uh, some of your Bibles. That is true to what Jesus said, though not true to what Matthew wrote. But the point is the same. A Godward Christward, Spirit-inspired faith is a kind of faith we should have. That kind of faith is realized, probably the most obvious place it's realized, it's realized in prayer. Faith is actualized in a number of ways. I've already mentioned a few of those. It's actualized in your study of God's Word and your desire to, to know Christ, desire to have faith in Him in terms of your calmness and being collected and not letting circumstances move you. But there's another way to look at your faith or test your faith. Ask yourself, do I pray? Prayer, this constant, ceaseless beckoning to God as evidence of your faith. People have said through the years, well, if you have a choice between prayer and reading the Bible, just read the Bible. Well, that sounds really noble, but it's completely unrealistic. Spurgeon said that creating that ridiculous dichotomy is like deciding between breathing in and breathing out. 
We all can do both. That's just an excuse for a lack of prayer. One of the books that we give out to new members is a wonderful little book on prayer by Don Whitney, Praying the Bible. Of course, if anybody wants that book, we've got copies. You know in our church we have prayer warriors who meet monthly, who gather together. We have prayer warriors who come during the week. I myself enjoy just walking through the sanctuary, touching all the chairs and praying for all of you and praying for our church and praying for our community. Others have come and done the same thing. Some, even during the worship service, we have a a prayer ministry where people pray the entire length of the worship service, calling out to God. We have prayer warriors who reach out to others and gather prayer requests. That the, the elders at the church, as you know, send you emails. All church members get an email a couple times, three to four times a year, asking what do you need in terms of prayer. The elders spend every Monday morning, Monday morning some time in prayer for you. Now, this is the way we want to demonstrate a hopeful faith, a hopeful, enduring faith. And and by praying, what we're doing is we're saying, Lord, we have a calm assurance of your plan. We would like for this miracle to occur. We would like for this marriage to be healed. We would like for these things to happen. But in the end, God, we have faith, not in getting what we want. We have faith in you. Into your hands, we commit our spirit. Our lives are committed to you. So whether or not we get what we want... We trust you. An enduring faith hopes in God and finds our hope in God. Even if things aren't going the way we want them, we should be relentlessly informed by the Word of God, particularly as we aim our prayers to Him, particularly as we articulate in our prayers about, uh, to God our confidence in His character, in His power, His ability, His sovereignty, and His plan. Our faith should be genuine. It should be specific, Christward. It should be hopeful in God's sovereign plan for us. Oftentimes, this is demonstrated in prayer. If your faith is in God rather than circumstances, you're always hopeful, aren't you? You don't even have to have the things fixed in your life, even some very troubling things. You don't have to have those things fixed in your life in order for you to find joy. One of the reasons that I had us read from Hebrews is there is Jesus suffering the worst sin ever committed on the face of the planet Earth, the killing of the Son of God. And it says, who for the joy set before him. He found joy. He trusted God. He knew the Word of God. He knew what had to happen. He had faith. It says there, nothing is impossible. This is very similar to that passage in Romans chapter 8, all things work together for the good of those who love Him and are called by His name. doesn't say we're always healed, we always get what we want, but it does say we all, all these things turn out for good. All these things, even hardship, we sang this, even death, though they slay me, I will rejoice. Doesn't say all are healed if they really believe in healing. All will find wealth if they really believe God's going to make them not poor anymore. All are going to find resolution in their personal conflicts. 
It does say we can find hope, we can find joy, no matter what the circumstances are. And we can go to God in that faith and find that joy and hope and calmness and confidence. All things are possible, meaning all things are made good, so that when you have the tiniest amount of genuine, informed, calm faith, even bad things will turn to joy and hope in the midst of suffering. Well, let's pray that we live by this kind of faith. Father, we thank you so much for your truth. We thank you, dear Jesus, for giving this lesson to your disciples. And Lord, you know how much they needed that lesson. And if those men who were with Jesus needed that lesson, we surely need this lesson, a lesson on true faith, enduring faith, persevering faith. Lord, instill in our hearts this calm faith, this informed faith, this genuine faith, this faith that is hopeful in You. We lay our hope and trust in You, not in our circumstances. And Lord, we know that You have had grace on so many of us and had mercy on so many of us. And not only have You instilled in our heart this genuine faith as we seek You, but You have healed a number of us. And You have brought resolution to many of our lives, and You have helped us in our poverty. And so, Lord, we give You all the glory. But, Lord, in spite of our uh, circumstances, in spite of the consequences around us, Lord, we want to give You our trust and our faith. I pray this is true for those of us who love You and believe You. And, Lord, for those who are not believers, we pray that they would reach out in faith learn about Christ who provides the righteousness that they need to cover them, the payment for their sin, give them an enduring, repentant faith, give them the faith that is, even though small, like a mustard seed, is a genuine and true, enduring faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.